I'm Sally Ann from Map the Maze. I'm Patricia Falchetta from Social Living Solutions. Together we speak about nurturing neurodiversity. All the ways we can create a truly inclusive society. We aim to educate, inspire and create social change. Through sharing stories, experiences and research, we challenge current systems and open dialogue on what we can all do to create change. We hope you will join us on our journey. So hello, I'm Sammy Ann from Map the Maze. Um, I am one half of Nurturing Neurodiversity and the other half is Patricia Falchetta from Social Living Solutions. Would you love to introduce yourself, Patricia? Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Um, as Sammy said, I'm Patricia from Social Living Solutions and I'm in Canberra, Australia, and I work with neurodiverse children and their families. Um, and today we're talking about a subject, well, Sammy and I are pretty passionate about all subjects of neurodiversity, but today we're talking about a really important subject and we're talking about autism or neurodiversity and mental health. Um, and we're hopefully going to give you um, some really worthwhile information and information that's helpful for you. We're going to talk about some facts around it. And then um, I'm pretty sure as we always do, after we've talked about the facts around it, we'll go into how we can better support people that are, are suffering from these issues and also things that we've both noticed in our work, working with families. Um, yeah. And if you are watching this, um, as we are talking, you have any questions, please put it in because this is such an important subject. Mm, I absolutely agree. I think in all of the posts that I did talking about this, I said, it's, it's, it's a big one. Like we're, we're yeah, it's Very big. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mental health has kind of become a, you know, a bit of a buzzword about, you know, about town, about our, you know, in, in, in the media, in um, just general society, in our, in our talking. And, and part of that is a, is a good thing because we are attempting to bring more awareness to, you know, people who suffer from mental illness and the fact that just because you can't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist and that, you know, a physical ailment is, you know, is just as bad or, or you know, equivalent to a, a mental ailment, right? Like we, we, we need to recognise that support and treatment for mental illness is the same as we would support and treat a physical Ill, illness or ailment of the body. Yeah. So we are making progress in this area, right? It's a, it's a big thing. It's a, it's a big topic at the moment. Um, but I still think that there is a lot of stigma around it. And I think the stigma can get worse when you are also neurodiverse because the ways that you process or, um, or experience or, you know, outwardly show what's going on for you can look very different. Um, and, and I think, I mean, I have a lot to say in terms of the whys about that, but we'll get there. <laughs> I wanted to start off with, um, I was having a look at the Amaze website, which for anyone who doesn't know, um, Amaze is an organisation in Victoria who specialise in autism. Um, they have been around for many years and um, are doing some really great work in this space. They have on their website at the moment some, um, some interesting statistics that they've gathered. They, they're sort of generalising from a lot of current research, but they say that 50 to 70% of autistic people will also experience mental illness, mental illness conditions or mental health conditions. Um, but that emerging evidence actually shows that autistic women and girls will often have higher rates than autistic men and boys. Hmm. I think we have probably touched on in previous videos as well about the, the hows and whys of that. Um, they also talk about the fact that the most common, most common co-occurring conditions are depression, anxiety, and or obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm. And I think that what I suppose what I would love to, you know, dive into today on top of, you know, or towards the end, we'll talk about some things that we can change and some things that we can do differently. But I would love to talk about um, how much of that is chemical imbalances in the brain is, um, you know, neural pathways that have been formed through the fact that the brain is developing differently and actually is wired differently. How much of it is like maladaptive coping mechanisms that, you know, people mm. have developed on an individual level because of their experiences with, being a, a neurodiverse person in a neurotypical world, but also, so that's the, that's looking at it as the individual, what's actually happening for that person in their brain in their, you know, and in their experience in their life. 
But then how much of that is actually, you know, systems and, um, you know, societal pressures and, you know, beliefs and, and messages coming from mm. society that's telling them that things that they are thinking or feeling or doing are somehow mm. wrong or, um, you know, make them feel like they're, they're stupid or inadequate or, um, or somehow other than the general population. Because I think that there is always, with anything, I think there is always a combination of both factors going on. It's the inner world yeah. and the world. And like, yeah. this is exactly how I approach, you know, work with all my clients and things as well, that we really have to look at individually what's happening for that person in the family unit what is happening and what can we you know work on within that and at the same time we're working on society we're talking about it we're making you know we're we're making connections we're asking more of environments that our children experience because we also need to have changes coming from the outside in because mm. what you're talking about there is environmental factors Absolutely. that's what you're talking about and how much yeah and how much of it is and yes there are exactly what you're saying there are things that will be there from neural pathways or maybe or chemical imbalance but because um people neurodiverse people are always operating under that heightened level of anxiety anyway and they're often like let's say it's here they're kind of just here that environmental factors play a huge part and actually when you were just talking just then yeah i was thinking it actually made me think of a couple of things that i'm just that I've just written down to mention while we're talking today. So I'll let you keep right. on going. Yeah. So it's, it's, I just think it's, it's an important, it's important to have the conversations about, yes, there are things going on, but from a, you know, from a diagnosis point of view, you know, we talk, we, we talked about last week about the fact that, you know, a diagnosis of autism, for example, is a list of observable behaviors and you have to hit a certain, you know, number or like, you're on a scale you have to be at a certain point to receive that diagnosis right it's actually very similar so anxiety depression ocd they're all listed in the dsm as well the diagnostic and statistical manual which you know psychologists psychiatrists you know doctors will use to make diagnosis and these these conditions these mental health conditions are the same they're a list of generally a list of observable behaviors or you know self-reported experiences of you know of of mood of affect of of feeling and so so much is is related to again what number do you hit on that scale to say that you have anxiety or depression you know how bad have you been feeling and that re relies on the person to be actually reporting uh, reporting on that um which can be problematic in itself Mm. There are, you know, it's much less often where people will actually go and get brain scans and look at the, you know, the differences in their, in their activity in the brain or all that kind of thing, because there are physical, you know, brain, um, you know, brain chemistry and, and, and pathways and, um, you know, and, and interactions that are happening, right, that we can measure. But those sorts of things are not happening for the everyday person. When you get a diagnosis of that, generally, it's because you've gone to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist who has done the checklist with you and then gone, yes, you have this, that, or the other. So effectively it's just another label to explain or describe how you're feeling about things. And so the, the high rate of co-occurrence with, with neurodiversity really makes me question whether that is just a result of the fact that, like you said, because of the way their brain process sensory input, they're already operating at a, at a very, their brain is already highly occupied just to exist in the world just to you know process the information that's coming at them all of the time and so that can be that can mean that their you know um their fight flight or freeze response can be triggered quite rapidly because they're already their brain is already working at high capacity and so that you know that that brain some can kick in really quickly and so then it does it, it makes perfect sense that you know that they would be feeling anxious a lot of the time that those feelings mm -hmm coming out because of what's happening for them in the way that they're processing the world. Mm. And then the same with depression to me, I think that, you know, if they are experiencing bouts where they, you know, they just feel like they can't do it. They feel like they can't, you know, interact with another person that day. They've got to be like locked in the shell. They need to have a dark room. How much of that is because there are, you know, some chemical imbalances that are not producing the right amount of hormones to keep, you know, the right amount of serotonin and all those different things that can happen in depression. And how much of that is them just being tapped out from those experiences and, and actually just, they don't need to have as much social contact as, as a neurotypical person. They don't need to have as much, you know, 
life and you know viewing things right like sometimes a dark room is is just that that kind of helps their brain calm down from all of the sensory input that they've had right so look like reframing what does that mean i think is a really big part of it because you know sometimes sometimes i think the labels that we give like anxiety depression you know ocd like having these things that you need to repeat over and over and over sometimes the labels can then become well that's why as opposed to looking at well okay what can we actually change in the environment what can we change in our structures to actually support that person so that they're feeling more capable so that they're feeling that they can you know they they can cope and they can do more things instead of just going oh well they have anxiety or they have depression or they have ocd so therefore you know that's why they're not coping not actually looking at what can we change in these different mm -hmm. environments you know mm -hmm. I think that's a really important part of the conversation that we're not just looking at, okay, well, we need to give this person medication because they have this, that, and the other, or we need to treat this person. They need to be going to see their psychologist every week. They need to be doing this, that, and the other, and then just leave all of the environments exactly the same, you know, leave all mm. of the structures exactly the same. And just, you just have to deal with that, even though it goes completely against how your brain operates. Mm you know, that's just how it is. Instead of going, well, how, we can actually make some changes here. It doesn't really affect us all that much. Like having a room with some lights that are dim or, you know, having a quiet space where people can go when they need some, some quiet, that, that actually doesn't really affect us all that much. No, it doesn't. It doesn't really support other people. And that's yeah. become so, you know, when we, when we start to talk about, you know, hard, hard, like things that we do, like, you know, for example, um, when kids are going to school, if they have a diagnosis of something, we're often saying, well, okay, we need to make these like amendments and these changes just for this child. Whereas yeah. my argument is no, no, we, we create that and make it available to everybody. Mm -hmm. Why does yeah. it, you know, why does it need to be this thing of, well, this child needs this and da, 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 da. Well, let's just create that for everyone. Can we create environments where everybody can choose to access that because we're, we're all going to, be up and down and at, you know, different levels of feeling and different levels of experiencing the world at different times. Mm. That's life. Mm. But also for those people who already struggle just to exist in those environments, if we make some small changes that, that, that everyone can access, then everybody can actually be recognized for how they're feeling to be valued as an individual person and to actually, you know, have some supports to cope with things a lot better. And I think those things will make a really massive difference for how people experience the world in general. Yeah, no, I look, Sammy, I'm just listening to what you're saying and I agree with you completely. And going back to what you were talking about at the beginning, which is, you know, when we're asking them when people are struggling, right? And um, particularly talking about thinking in my mind about um, primary age school children and high school children okay and we and and they're and they're struggling um they're struggling um sorry lost my train of thought um um yeah they're struggling they're struggling with working out what is going on and we might we may already have an autism diagnosis or a neurodiverse diagnosis and we may not okay and then we ask them to fill in you know this these depression sheets and all of that okay and then what, what I was thinking of when we were talking about is don't forget that a lot of people who are on the spectrum has alexithymia, which is the inability to actually be able to um, understand what they're feeling and what's going on inside. Then we're putting them under additional pressure because we're actually asking them to fill in the sheet mm. to diagnose where they are at on this scale. So that, and also that's also those sheets, again, very similar to the, the, the tests for autism, that they're yeah. actually done with a neurotypical lens on. Like this is the normal thing. Yeah, so then exactly. Of this yeah. is somehow unusual or different. And so it's, it's exactly the same thing with anxiety and depression and OCD, where it's like, well, this is how it is to be normal. And then mm. anything outside of that is not. Let's mm. look at that system as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know. And then the other thing that I was thinking as well, when you were talking about that, like, you know, changes in the classroom and that, and how, why don't we just do it for everybody? So then when you, if you think about it in that, that oh you know little johnny has autism or he has adhd and we need to change the classroom environment or because you know we need to put these special you know as we call them reasonable adjustments into place 
what we're doing now, what, and, and this is society, so I'm not saying the education system, I'm saying in general because mm. this is just what we do across the board, we're reinforcing that anxiety for that child, right? And particularly if it's a teenager who be, will be aware of what their needs are and what they need done, you know, like, you know, sometimes um, being innocent and naive is better in some ways and sometimes for primary age children that's what's happening for them because they might not quite have that awareness yet, right? But, of course, when you're in year 7, 8, 9, 10, you do have that awareness and then they're making these adjustments. So it's almost like you're reinforcing that negativity and you're already you're reinforcing the negativity and you're reinforcing the anxiety and therefore you're... It's really creating, it's still creating that other, isn't it? It's creating, yeah. here's what we do in the classroom, but... But you're other yeah. than that. You're separate from that. Yeah. And also, yeah. I think what can happen then is you're actually creating an environment where you're almost precluding them from accessing the support, even though mm. you're following through on providing the support mm. that they need. Mm. You're creating yeah. a way that actually they don't want to use it. They don't want to be seen to be using it. They don't want to see, be seen to need that because then yeah. they're somehow different or wrong or not coping. Um, Just got an interesting comment here. So thank you. This is from Jessica. Um, so she said she believes her mental illness diagnosis is based on undiagnosed ADHD and autism. Mm. 30 years of trying to mask and just get by. My anxiety is a huge issue I've always dealt with. Um, then she says, super interesting subject, guys. Thank you, Jessica. And then she says, oh, my God, all the sheets are filled in. And that's exactly right. I, I can't, couldn't agree with you more. And this is, you know, Jessica, you're, and it'd be great, you know, if you wanted to add to the discussion some more by commenting because... You know, you're saying like you're, you know, obviously in your 30s and, um, you know, and you've been filling in these sheets and everything. And they were putting those, we're imposing those sorts of things on kids. And that's what I always found about the process too, was that, um, you know, and I've talked about this before, I know in previous lives that we've done, where we've talked about when kids are having those meltdowns in class or those explosions, how that's because they don't have the language or the emotional intelligence yet to actually be able to really understand what they're feeling. And then we're, we're then asking them, like, you know, just saying to fill in all these sheets and fill in the stuff and we're sitting there and we're almost sitting there, you know, it's quite clinical when you think with piece of paper, okay, how do you feel? What's this? What's that? Mm. You know, what, what's analyze, going on analyze, with you? Analyze, analyze, score out, analyze. Of, out of five. You know, does yeah. this happen to you all the time or only some of the time? Or, you know, are you feeling like a, a five sad or are you feeling a one sad? Like, yeah. yeah. Accurate is that going to be when they're not sure? And then, and if, if the child is in a position where they are either too young or don't have the ability to to answer those questions, then the onus then falls on the parent to do it for them. Mm -hmm. and so they are effectively, you know, judging or, or you know, um, trying to determine where a child or what a child is experiencing or feeling from the outside, which mm -hmm. is really hard to do. Really hard, even mm -hmm. as a parent, is hard to know. Especially if the child is having trouble communicating that. So, yeah, it, it basically just highlights that, you know, the system that we have is, is, is far from perfect. Of course, no. it's, it's become a lot better. You know, we've had a, a vast improvement in the last, and even in the last 10 years, I would say there's been a vast improvement from, oh, yeah. from you know, from the way that we view it, from um, even like supports available in workplaces and, and schools and, you know, all of these areas where we have, we have started to provide more and we have started to make changes and, and now I think we are clever enough and we're smart enough and we have enough information to, to know that we can actually reframe how we look mm. at it. Like we can reframe how we go about it all together. Um, mm. And I love that Jess has jumped on because I think she has so much wisdom to share in this area from her experiences. But yeah. I, out that I, I wish that her experiences were, you know, isolated and quite rare, but actually for, for women and girls in the spectrum, this is why the statistics are starting to show that yeah. the rates are higher because a lot, like a high <coughs> are very late to diagnosis or go undiagnosed throughout their lives. And so they're thinking yeah. that they are struggling with these things that people seem to just get. People seem to just be able to like know what to say in a social situation or to understand the body language or the tone of voice of someone. And I'm having a really hard time understanding that I can see from, you know, reactions from people. And because I I'm really empathic and I can feel mm. the feelings of people around me, I can see when I've said something wrong, but I don't know why it was wrong. Mm. And, so and they feel like trying to work out these contexts and understand what's happening. Mm. And no wonder you're feeling depressed or anxious about that. Like, no wonder you, well, you feel high levels of that when you're trying to work out just how to exist in the world right and yeah how to, and see, how to 
you know, sorry. Yeah. No, no, I'm just looking at Jessica's comments because she says she has one diagnosed daughter and another in the process. And that's how she started making these realizations about herself and saying super common and such a huge amount of my friends are neurodiverse too. Yeah. And that's right. Like just, you know what Sammy was just saying too. And you know what you were saying just then, Sammy was making me think that people feel broken. That's how they feel. And that's how like, you know, um, and that's how just our systems my, are set up to make yeah. you, right? Because if and you just, feel broken, then you are putting the onus on yourself to fix yourself yeah. as opposed to questioning why do I feel broken? Why has the, why has the system, why has society made me feel like I'm broken? Because if we're busy working on ourselves and trying to somehow fix ourselves, because we fix think ourselves, else, then we're yeah. not holding our leaders to account for yeah. how things are run, right? We're not, and, and, you know, some people have, you know, have all of these things and other people don't. And don't, yeah. And, and you know, about that, but <laughs> yeah, that's right. But going to, what just, you know, and that's right. Just because I had, um, I experienced, exactly the same thing because you know i was diagnosed with adhd two years ago now so when i was 49 and that was just like the biggest like relief it was like oh okay and then started looking into it and even still now still looking into it still getting to understand it. so many things in my life making so much sense in my growing up socially where i struggled with all of those sorts of things and that those levels of anxiety and depression and mental health that you know i myself have struggled with as well and, you know, and then when we talk about life expectancy of um, people on the autism yeah. spectrum, then we think about people having these maladaptive coping mechanisms, which then, of course, is going to place them under more anxiety, therefore shorten their lifespan even yeah, further. Yeah, it's a stress on the whole system then, isn't it? Yeah, because, you know, um, an interesting fact to share here, and I suspect that these are probably more leaning towards males than females, but... Like the average life expectancy of a person with autism is is only fifty four, mm. and that's here in Australia. Yeah, in twenty twenty one, right? And that's that's it's less than our indigenous our indigenous brothers and sisters who already have a really who already have very low life mm. expectancy. Mm. And then when you think that, and we you know, and then when you think autistic people also have such a um a big pardon low life expectancy right you know it's shocking and you know why like why mm. you know and it's no different you think talk about diversity it's no different to indigenous people are trying to fit into this you know western mold and all of that sort of stuff and everything and mm. try and that's exactly what's happening with autistic people as well mm. again comes back to this diversity people factor sorry and accepting difference and 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 embracing it rather than trying to make everybody fit into this, you know, this whole square peg in the round hole mm. kind of thing. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I was thinking, um, thanks, Jessica. She said, that's amazing. So glad you got your diagnosis and are making such mm. amazing discoveries. But did you want to talk about the maladaptive coping mechanisms? Because I think that'd be something that's really good to talk about. And hopefully people that are watching afterwards will get that as well. Because that's particularly um, relevant um, females but males also also masks yeah. as well like one of my yeah. son's masks you know yeah. so they're doing it as well like well, the I think what, what, what you've basically said there is effectively as a you know as a society or the the, the systems that we have the structures that we have within our culture um mm. and this happens i think across a lot of western westernized cultures and a lot of sort of first world countries but you know in our experience, it's, it's very true that, you know, effectively, if you, if you behave in this way, if you look like this, if you act like this, then you will be successful. Um, mm. You know, if you can, if you can, you know, pass the English test, if you can do your maths and if you can, you know, like it starts from school age, right? Like if you, if you get really good grades, then you're going to be successful. If you're really great at sport, then you're going to be successful. If you, you know, we go through all of these things. If you can sit well and, and listen to the teacher and behave in class, then you're going to go far. And then you hit the workplace and it's like, well, if you can fill this role, if you can, you know, if you can look a certain way, if you can present yourself properly, if you can communicate well with your clients or customers or, you know, depending on what field you work in, if you can, um, you know, if you can perform the tasks, the set task if you can you know hit these kpis if you can hit these numbers then you know then you're going to be really great and we'll you know we'll reward you um you know and and even in society it's like well you know to be a good friend you have to be like you know calling or messaging this many times a week we have to be you know catching up this many times or whatever like there's all of these 
structures and rules and, and ideas we have about what it means to be a successful person. And by starting out this, just by this messaging existing in our culture, which mm. is people learn from a very, very young age, even before school, a lot of the time, kids learn that, okay, in order to be loved and connected with other people, I need to do X, Y, and Z. Yep. And by creating that communication, that messaging, that programming effectively, mm. what we're doing is if you feel outside of that or if you mm. act outside of that, then you are bad or wrong. Mm. So if you are naturally wired to need to move your body about the room, if you're naturally wired to, you know, need to have some headphones on in with some, you know, mm. music mm. or something that, that like blocks out the world so that you can concentrate. If you, you know, if you learn in a certain way that's different from the standard way, then, mm. then you're that automatically you're getting the message that, well, okay, well, you're, you're wrong or you're going to, you're not going to be successful. You can't, you can't, you know, survive in this world. Mm. So then what mm. they do when they're feeling outside of that is they try extra hard to, mm. that way, to do those things, to, to be that person that's, that's going to be the successful person. And I think that is where so many of our, when I talk about maladaptive coping mechanisms, those are, you know, we, we all have coping mechanisms, right? And, and whether or not they're maladaptive really just comes down to, is it working for you? Mm. you know, how, 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 you know, how is that impacting on your, your mental health, on your, you know, on your functioning in daily life? And so, you know, we can talk about coping mechanisms in the sense that, you know, for, for a neurodiverse person, they might, they might need headphones in, they might have a fiddle toy, they might have, you know, we talk about all of these things that we can provide a quiet space, all of these different ideas that, um, you know, that different people will react to in different ways, but it might, it, it works for some people, right? So if those sorts of things work for you, then those coping mechanisms are great. We use, mm. we absolutely will use those. But by making some of those things mean that you're not going to be able to work, that you're not, you know, that you're not going to have a successful career, that, you know, you won't fit in or yeah. blah, 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 then we're saying they're maladaptive, but what actually happens is that they will then develop other coping mechanisms because you need coping mechanisms to get yeah. them. But they'll be yeah. that slowly destroy the fabric of who you are inside. Yeah. Maladaptive yeah. coping mechanisms. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, not being able to, to hear the conversation around you because you're so focused on when do I need oh. to look the person in the eye and when can I look away or how should my body reply right now? Um, when do I laugh and smile and when do I yeah. look concerned or look interested or, you know, all of these sorts of things. If you're so focused on that, <laughs> no, no. hearing the words and so you're, you're actually then missing the real connection a lot of the time yeah. because what people are trying to say to you gets missed. And yeah. then yes, if you are focusing on what the person's trying to say so that you can really connect to what they're saying and often you'll respond, you know, for a neurodiverse person, a lot of the t experiences that I've heard is that they'll respond with either a similar story to show that they've experienced the same thing. Mm. They'll talk about, you know, something that they know about the topic to show that they are interested in reciprocating the conversation, but then people mm. take over the story, right? Yeah. There are all these little things where it's like the natural way of them communicating and connecting with other people is made wrong. And so then that each time that happens, it's a little bit more of a, okay, well, I can't, I can't do that. I can't be that person. Yeah. yeah. And like Jessica's just said, it can be so exhausting some days and that's right because their mind, you know, they, you, and you are, you're trying, you're watching all of this sort of stuff and everything. And look, if you've got, I can tell you this because it's, if you've got ADHD, what happens is your mind wants to stop talking to you. And it's not that you're not interested, but like all of a sudden this random thought will come in. Okay. And you'll just, and then you'll be like, oh, you're on a shit. Yeah. yeah. And, and then you'll be like, oh, and then it's so stressful because then in your mind, what you're actually trying to do is stay engaged and remember, but also try and click back into the conversation yeah. so that you can reciprocate the conversation. Yeah. And, and that is, I can... sure there's another voice going, oh, I can't believe you just did that. You're a terrible yeah. person. You're a terrible friend. Yeah. Like you're, you're then telling yourself the stories at the same yeah. time what you're trying to then refocus, which is, which is impeding on your ability to refocus. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's exhausting. You know, in society, we make that mean that you're not a good friend. No. But if we actually change our ideas and we're, we're more open with our communication and understand mm. that, that 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 happens, you know, because potentially what might work better is if as a, as you know, as your friend, I really want to um, communicate something that happened to me. And instead of just talking at you for 30 minutes, maybe I need to like write it down or maybe I, you know, maybe we do it by a text message instead or yeah. you know, 
know, yeah. oh, if you're thinking about that right now, you know, is there another time we can catch up? Like, is there, is there other things going on that you need to deal with first so that you can focus? Because that happens for all of us too, like especially I think once we become parents, that there's there's like, a lot going on. <laughs> there's a lot of programs, like there's a lot of programs running at the same time. There's a lot of tabs open in our brains, right? There's a lot yeah, of yeah, things yeah. to keep track of, and so then, you know, and then yeah, you, like you described, you know, if you have ADHD, you might be going, okay, I've got this tab open right now, but this tab and this tab and this tab and this tab and this tab, and like you're going through all the things, and then you come back, yeah. ah. I, I need to like rewind that and play it again because I've missed yeah. it. Whereas, you know, perhaps th- there, there'll be other experiences where it's like, I am, I'm on this tab. I'm focused on this tab. I can't think about any of the other tabs. I must just finish this one tab. And, finish yeah. it. and when that's yeah. done, then I can close that tab and then I can open the next tab. Like there's lots of different ways that we experience it, but making some of those right and wrong, I think is where so much of our, our mental health issues come from. And when we look at it as a general population, you know, I think there's a, there's a little bit of talk around about, oh, you know, back in my day, we didn't have this, you know, this many people with autism. We didn't have this many people with anxiety and depression. And I think the main reason for that is that we didn't recognise it. We, we, no. we, people, we ask people to shove it down and just pretend like everything's okay and just feel mm. right and we'll just mm. get on with it. Whereas now we are starting to that's why I say we've come a little ways because we're starting to go, okay, we recognize that this is a problem and here's how with mm. our lens on with our, you know, white privileged male hat on, here's how we're going to fix that. We're going to give some money for this and we're going to do that and we're going to label these things and then we can provide the, the money to do this, right? With all with the right intentions, right? All with like, we, we want to help. We want to make a difference. We want to, you know, we want to support you, but I think we're now coming to the point where we recognize that, you know, throwing money at a problem or, or creating another program to, you know, to try to help the problem is not the answer. Sometimes we actually have to just look at how are we interacting in the world? How are we, yeah. how people behave and how much does that say about them? But also how much does that say about us? Like if I'm triggered yeah. by that behavior, so much of what we're taught is to just, make that behavior wrong instead of looking at well, why am I triggered by that behavior and why is that person doing that behavior like let's have a look a little bit deeper than just the face value of things and I think that will that will help so many people if we can really create a society that is more willing to take a moment and listen yeah yeah no I agree with you and I think you know I think too that with um you know with um the thing too is people are often, you know, um, flying under the, you know, flying under the radar as we know with, um, not just with autism and ADHD, but also with mental health as well. So, you know, this is the thing too, is that, um, and this, this is the issue too, because it's still getting still a lot. I would say it's getting swept under the rug. It's almost like it's not acceptable. You don't want to say that you've got anxiety or you don't want to say that you've got depression or, um, you know, or, you know, if you have something like OCD or something like that. Um, and that's the thing too, is we really, really need to open this conversation. And I think that we um, need to make, really open up those conversations in in school in schools um in particular so that kids get used to very early on get used to that language it's really interesting on when i was driving somewhere this morning i heard on the news that a couple of universities in melbourne that are bringing mindfulness in as a subject mm. into into uni and this is the sort of thing that needs to happen these are the sort of things that need to go on so not go on need to occur Mm. so that these things are in the open and we're talking about it a lot more openly because um you know i think what would have happened particularly like um um for people that got diagnosed um maybe 10 years ago or so like my children for example there wasn't as much awareness then around autism and mental health okay Mm. so you got the diagnosis and you it's almost like and this is the thing too it's about this thing of labeling which we always talk about so it's so like you're treating the autism. Yes. What are you treating? Autism is just a differently wired brain. It's just a different way to live in the world, right? Mm-hmm. But then you don't realise that because that approach has been taken, that that is then affecting a person's mental health because you keep on... Because you talk about maladaptive. What we're always doing too is trying to... We're trying to make them adapt to the world as these yes. rather than the world adapting to them and yep. and 
and fitting in with them. So that therefore is reinforcing the negatives, all the things that are wrong with them. And, you know, as far as society is concerned, all the things that are wrong with them. And so they're going down this almost like picking up momentum that you're going to end up as an adult with uh, quite severe mental health issues. So, and the other thing too, that I think is really um, interesting as well, and this is through my work with families is I think environmental factors are huge. And, you know, um, when I think about environmental factors too, I think about what's going on within the family unit as well. So um, if you've got a family unit, like, you know, where maybe mum got diagnosed later or dad got diagnosed later and they get a diagnosis and they're not positive about it, that's then going to affect the kids too. And if they don't kind of feel like it's answered all their questions and things like that. Whereas when I got a diagnosis, I was like, great, like this is really good. I now know what, you know, what to do and it's so, you know, such a good thing. But the other thing too, coming back to families as well is the environment within the home. And what I mean is regardless of neurotypical or neurodiverse, I'm talking about routines and structure and things like that. Some of the homes that I go into, um, there, there's obviously not much structure. There is chaos. The house is really messy and dirty. There's all... These things, these things are really important for mental health as well. Um, and, um, you know, that if parents are struggling with that, I really would encourage them to get help because that will be affecting, particularly if a child is neurodiverse, because routine and structure is so important. And that's the environment that they thrive in when there is a lot of routine and structure around. I think there are, um, you know, in that, I think there's a, there's a lot of factors, right? I think a lot ooh. of with the, the pressures of modern parenting and modern parenting oh yeah um but the but the, that's a that's a real um example i think of both lack of support mm. by, you know having family nearby yeah. and things, but also this idea that you know we have to be like the perfect parent and so therefore if we're yes. shocked, we can't keep the house clean we can't do this that and the other we can't ask for help uh, we're too ashamed to ask for help yeah. And but I think you can. It really applies to yeah. neurodiversity as well, where it's like there's this, there's this, you know, dichotomy of like the individual experience and what they're going through and what mm. they feel ashamed mm. to ask for help for, to access for themselves, and then also how society is viewing that, and you know how we provide support and, and how where we don't, and you know that, that really playing out. I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's why. Sorry, Sam, but I was going to say that's why I love doing what I do so much, right? Because. You know, and people will, like, I'll go into their homes and they'll be apologising, right? And they're like, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, no, like, this is great. This is why I love my job, right? Like, I'm, like, like I'm we, can this. Like, we can we can, we can change this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, we, and I look at, like, routines with them and structure and all that sort of stuff and everything. We put it in, you know, and it's like, no, there's no judgment. And I think that's the other thing, too that's massive is judgment and that comes mm. into mental health as well. Mm. And I think for these families as well, that they've got a real, you know, you know, apart from you and me, there are a lot of other people. Like I know a lady in Canberra that um, she calls herself the decluttering expert and she works with NDIS participants and goes into their homes and helps them to declutter because I mean, cause they are struggling with modern parenting. And then if you've got a neurodiverse child, you're taking to all of them these different therapy appointments and that. How are you supposed to get dinner on the table, do the groceries, work, mm. take them to appointments, mm. uh, look after your own mental health, mm. your own self-care, child self-care, your husband's self-care. Yeah. If you've got pets, they're self-looking after yeah. pets as well. I mean, yeah. you know, it's, it's massive. So I think it's so important to know that, uh, yeah, but that there is the, you know, that there are all of these things that can um, and that parents need to be look, keeping their cup full if, yeah. as much as they can so that they can then help, mm. you know, where their children are struggling. Yeah, I think what you're saying there too, there's so many things where we, you know, we've kind of almost pathologized, but we've like, we're saying that, you know, mindfulness is like a therapy tool, you know, like decluttering is like a therapy tool. Like we made mm. all these therapy tools and actually if just everybody had access to these things, like you're saying, you know, putting mindfulness in schools, which there are a lot of schools starting to develop that now. Yeah. But now looking at that going, actually, when we all do this, it's really helpful. <laughs> yeah. So there are so many things like that where it's like, if we just put all of these like therapy tools in from the start in oh. systems in workplaces in like in communities everywhere if we have all of these like different options then people get to like 
make their own map, right? Like they, they get to choose their pathway. They get to go, this feels really good for me. And this helps me, you know, feel really good at my, about myself. Or this helps me feel really calm or, you know, and, and we just accept that everybody has different ways and different, you know, things that different ways that that will look right. Different, mm. you know, ideas and, and, and tools and things that they like to use. And that all of that is okay. All of that is welcome here. Mm. Mm. yeah like, like, like taking the pathology out of it taking the you know this is a medically you know diagnosed problem or this is a, mm. a you know a, a, a suggestion from my therapist that we have to do x y and z it's like well let's just look at what works for you and your family let's start yeah 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 actually that triggers something that you were saying before about you know the yeah the <laughs> running to all the different therapies and so the child experiencing all of these different oh. Okay, I need this person to fix me in this part, and this person to fix me in this part. Yeah. I'm really broken if I need all of these different things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Our child to the therapies, and we're not having those conversations at the same time about we're doing all of this work because right now we exist in 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 this box, mm. and actually we know that the box is wrong. So we're gonna we're gonna do some of these things to help you get mm. along and do some things that you want to do because we exist in the society but at the same time we're having these conversations about actually we should probably all be able to do x y and z and and, and actually balance out those those mm. conversations with with what we need to be changing as a society as well and and how the things that you do with you know with speech therapists here and things you do with the og here you should be able to do that at school you should be able to do that you know yes the, you know grocery shop or the library or the you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. We're working towards actually making sure that that all, you know, the more that we talk about it, the more that we're open about it, and, and it's open com conversation and communication, right? It's like being honest about how we feel about something, and also not not you know guarding our you know our pre-existing ideas about something so tightly that we're not open to other possibilities. You know, all of these things that we make it mean, and actually, if we just look at okay individually, what do each of the people in this family unit need? And then how do we create that for each of them within an overarching family unit? And that exact philosophy can be applied to our society where individually, what do all the people in our society need? What is like the massive, huge range of things that, that each individual person needs to, to feel really much better about themselves? And how can we create a society where all of those things work within that? And I'm not saying that's an easy fix. I'm not saying that's an easy thing to do, but I'm definitely saying it needs to be a conversation that we're having and we need to be working out how we can do that. And if and you know, things broken down and then rebuilt, well, then that's what we're going to do. And the thing about, you know, like saying highly complex needs and that, your family probably isn't highly complex needs. It's probably that it's probably that that's the way society at the moment, it, what I'm trying to say, sorry, is that it's society that's made you feel like it's that neurotypical yeah. lens of view where they haven't made yeah. you feel like that because they're not, it's just what it's actually how the neuro how we, the neurotypical world should be adapting to make her children feel comfortable, to make her kids be able to thrive, to make them be able to learn whatever they have to do. It doesn't mean that their that their complex is something wrong with them. It means that if they're sitting in a classroom and the fluorescent lights are too bright or they're so highly sensitive that they can hear the buzzing of fluorescent lights and they can't cope or they go to a shopping centre and it's really noisy or there's smells or things like that, they're, they're the things that we need to look at changing. So people aren't walking around and operating under such high levels of anxiety and stress all the time. Mm. Um, the final point that I want to um, sort of introduce, I suppose, today is that we've, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, the, the balance between, you know, what, what is neurodiversity and what is actually, you know, mental health, what is like the chemical imbalances and things like that. Mm. Because so often we're actually not really testing to find out where those are. We're kind of just guessing. And part of that process is often involves medication, right? So there's medication mm. prescribed to help with a certain set of behaviours or, or, you know, um, symptoms per se. Mm. And then that's, that's, you know, that's not an exact science either. There's a lot of, you know, because it depends on the individual person, how they react to it, right? But there's also not a lot of conversation about the side effects of those medications and how that actually impacts on the way that the brain functions too. Because you might be fixing what, you know, fixing one problem or one experience of the brain and actually affecting another part quite severely and, and you know, 
it's like which is the better of two evils almost so it's you know we've got that whole thing going on as well where it's like you can be medicated or not medicated and there's a whole argument around whether you should be or not right but then also even breaking it down to how is that medication affecting the individual person is it helping them cope is it helping them adapt or is it actually you know taking away of a lot of their experiences or is it is it you know impacting on some other areas of their life which which kind of counterbalances the, the you know the effects that it's had on on one part that can be really hard as well i think for families to navigate especially you know what i was just thinking that's a whole nother life <laughs> that's a whole nother hour that in itself is a whole because you know and i mean um well i've got literature on like and I'm not, look, I'm not pro-med, I'm not anti, I'm just saying I've got literature on some of the medications that are used for ADHD and, and, and autism. And again, see, it comes back to this thing that why, why are we giving them medication? Because we need to fix them. We need to fix these people, right? So then we're, what, you know, so, you know, think about that. But then also too, there are links between some of the ADHD medications and how later on in life it can then, um, it can then uh, trip, like almost trip your brain into you becoming bipolar, developing conditions like that. And but like to give you a perfect, perfect example, um, and I'm being very open about this, sharing this on a live. But so my cousin, my cousin in the United States of America has ADHD, right? And he's now in his 30s. So obviously he was diagnosed 20, 30 years ago. He was put on Ritalin for that, for it. Yeah, for that, for it, right? And in our, in our family, there's a propensity for people to, to, which we didn't know until this happened, you know, to develop bipolar and things like that. Mm -hmm. So as an actor, so he, he, he developed bipolar, right? So he's now, so now not ADHD is, but bipolar is a whole different like kind of mental health and what it goes with it and all this mm -hmm. stuff. And then I remember with my, my older son, who's, got ADHD as well. He has autism and ADHD. And we were looking at, you know, and again, and I remember that went to a specialist, you know, this is the thing I want to put, as soon as you say ADHD, they want to put you on medication. Mm -hmm. And I and I bought it and then, you know, and they said, oh, but it's a one in 10,000 chance. And I said, yeah, but what if my son is that one in 10,000? Like, I'm not prepared to take that risk. Mm -hmm. So this is, parents, are, and also to, and again, I'm, again, I always, kind of, I'm not criticizing teachers or whatever, but sometimes teachers are so, um, have so many kids in the classroom that if that one kid that is being like, or being, or however, and being super disruptive, blah, 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 because they have ADHD, and you give them a pill, it makes them sit there quietly for six hours. Of course, that's an easy fix, rather than having to find the reasonable adjustments that we might have to bring in for that child to be able to focus better and enjoy his or her school day more. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. Because that's, that's a whole nother. Yeah, it's true. So much like we, we really do need to talk about this another day because we could talk for another like yeah. easy. Because uh, Jess uh, said, you know, that, that it's the pathways between addiction and self-medicating as well. Yeah, like, yeah. Like how much of that is you know medicated versus unmedicated versus looking for other things to medicate. Yeah, yeah. there's a whole. And Jessica said, she said, lol, she was thinking about that to a whole different chat. Yeah. 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 Sorry, true. So true. So maybe we'll save that one for another day because that's a whole other kettle of fish. I'll write that down on our list. Thank you, everybody, so much for joining us. Thank you, particularly to April and yeah. Jess who jumped in the comments and having a really great discussion with us because I think it, it, it really is such an important topic that we're talking about. Because as I said at the beginning, it's, you know, mental health is a little bit of a buzzword at the moment. And we, you know, there, there are some laws, like there are some, you know, anti-discrimination laws. There are some, you know, some things that we're, we're changing and implementing mindfulness in schools. There's a few things that are starting to come about that, you know, that is in it steps in the right direction. Um, mm. But a lot of it can kind of almost be seen as a band-aid fix until we actually get to the heart yeah. of it, which is viewing ways of interacting and reacting to things as wrong and so i think that's, that's really right to, that's where we want the conversation to 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 head to you know to center mm. around we want to be having more of these conversations we want to hear mm. you know more neurodiverse voices about their experiences and how we can actually you know support them in better ways better support them and also looking at you know so many of these like i said so many of these you know therapy options or treatment you know tools it's mm. beneficial for everybody and how can we make it more accessible for everybody all the time and be just be talking mm. make it part of normal life yeah 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 
That's right. Make it part of normal life. And that's the thing about, yeah, a lot of, you know, making adjustments and things like that should just be normal part of the classroom. And I mean, it wouldn't be great if we could change schools and the structure of how, you know, lighting and, yeah, you know, and just having like, why not just have sensory boxes in classrooms yeah. where kids, no matter what, who they are, can go and grab, you know, something. Yeah. Yeah, whatever they need in that moment yeah exactly exactly yeah it's so true um and i think a little note at the end just to say too if you are um if you feel like you're struggling right now oh yes i was gonna say that thank you reach out for help um in australia we have beyond blue we have lifeline we have kids helpline um those numbers are all really easily accessible um google is your friend please do reach out if you're struggling. And of course you can always PM either of us um, and we will send you in the right direction if you need it as well. Because yeah. and we, we, don't, we don't need to, we don't need to suffer in silence. We can reach out for help. There's no shame in asking for help. Um, no. And no, you will never find any judgment from us either. No, that's right. And um, if you want to reach either of us to find out more about what we do and the work that we do. So Sammy, your website and your Facebook page or your Facebook page. Do you yeah. want to tell yeah, so Facebook page? Hopefully. I mean, if you're watching it from my Facebook page, yes. it's Sammy Ann Map the Maze, um, or you can find me at www.sammyann.com. Lots of information there. You can go on a little yeah. bit more into, into what I do and, and my background. And what about you? And your Instagram page as well. You have an um, Insta? Yeah. I'm not as active over there. I kind of, I'm not even yeah. really sure what my handle is over there, but I'll come back to you on that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, um, so I'm on Facebook. So Patricia Falchetta on Facebook. I also have a business page, Social Living Solutions. And on my Facebook page, uh, there's also a link tree, which gives you all the links to my business. And then I also, I have an Instagram handle. So it's just Patricia Falchetta. And, um, and then my website is um, www.sociallivingsolutions.com.au because my business name is Social Living Solutions. Beautiful. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs>